Chapter 10. On Mount Zion, Abraham's Offering of Isaac. They must needs be chastened and tried, even as Abraham. Doctrine and Covenants 101, verse 4. God's Request and Abraham's Obedience. The temple site for which Abraham is most remembered, however, is not at Beersheba, but a place some 40 miles north, the destination of an unexpected journey he was called to make while living at Beersheba. It is the startling story of his supreme sacrifice, the crowning event of his life, and it involves his beloved son Isaac, who, according to the earliest sources, was about 25 at the time. Genesis announces the event as a test for Abraham, but the Zohar insists that Isaac was also included in the trial. It began with a surprise conversation initiated by God apparently at night. Orson Hyde states that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Abraham, while Josephus tells that God actually appeared to him. God addressed him by name, by the name he had given him, the name meaning father of a multitude, Abraham. Or, according to the Septuagint, God called his name twice, Abraham, Abraham, to which Abraham responded in deep humility, Here am I, Lord, what willest thou of thy servant? According to Genesis, the Lord answered, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. In the words of the 19th century writer, God bids him sacrifice the son for whom he had waited so many years, and over whose birth he had so rejoiced. He bids him sacrifice his only son, the one link, which there was between himself and the promise that his posterity should be as the dust of the ground and as the stars of the heaven in number. He bids him sacrifice Isaac, whom he loved, towards whom his heart yearned with infinite tenderness, who had made his home bright and joyous, and to lose whom would be the darkening of all the days he had yet to live. Josephus insists that this was not a command, but a request, a fact not apparent in the King James translation. Take now thy son. But this word, now, translates the Hebrew na, a particle of entreaty, which translators of the stature of Robert Alter and Everett Fox say should be rendered in this verse as a request. Take, pray, your son. So also the preeminent medieval Jewish scholar Rashi held that the meaning of the Genesis passage is not a command, but God was saying, I request of you. Jewish tradition similarly records... The Lord essaying, please, or I have come to ask of thee something. Standing face to face with his beloved friend Abraham and looking him in the eye, God gently requests the sacrifice of Abraham's own beloved son, and then keeps silent about his reasons. Many had been the commands that Abraham had received from the Lord, but never a request. It seems to leave the door open for questions or discussion about the nearly unbelievable task the Lord had asked for. But the man who had pled with such fervor with the Almighty over the fate of Sodom now offered no dissent or discussion, no hedging or hesitation. He did not stop to reason or argue with the Almighty, noted Joseph F. Smith, but simply went, without complaining or murmuring, to fulfill what God had asked. Abraham could well have offered a justifiable excuse, pointing out what God had asked contradicted the prior promises, said Yosef Albo, but he refrained from doing so, suppressing his paternal feelings out of love of God. God had expressly recognized Abraham's love for Isaac in asking for his sacrifice, and it was indeed Abraham's love that was being tested. Whom did he love the most, Isaac or God? 
Such was Abraham's love for and trust in the Almighty that even in the face of this horrendous deed, and even when it had been put to Abraham as a mere request, apparently all he needed to know was what God desired. God's wish was truly Abraham's command, no matter how hard. Abraham is the focus, but what about Sarah? Has he told her where he is going? Has he said anything to her about what he's about to do? The story does not tell us, at least directly it doesn't, but the lack of any protest makes it clear, as observed by one Latter-day mother and leader, that out of kindness to her, Abraham did not disclose what he had been asked to do. He simply, as Genesis tells, rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. He did it himself, although he had many servants, and took his two lads with him. And Isaac his son, he split wood for the offering, and rose and went to the place that God had said to him. Before they left that morning, according to rabbinic texts, Abraham and Isaac said their morning prayers, as was always their practice. With the donkey carrying the wood and provisions, the party of four began the long walk northward and gradually upward to the hill country of Moriah, the destination designated by God. The severity of the trial, notes Henry Blunt, was unspeakably increased by the three days journey the deed was not to be done on sudden impulse but only after due deliberation as he walked beside his beloved son carrying the weight of a terrible secret the secret was his alone says eli weasel indeed he alone knew that there was a secret and he refused to share it he would keep his beloved son safe from pain or anxiety as long as possible shouldering the entire overwhelming burden as long as he could it might, of course, have been different. God might, as Origen pointed out, have asked Abraham simply to take Isaac to the appointed place, and there asked for the sacrifice. But with Abraham knowing fully where he, why he is going, the painful journey is prolonged for three days, and during the whole three days the parent's heart is tormented with reoccurring anxieties. So that the father might consider the son in the whole lengthy period, that he might partake of food with him, that the child might weigh in the father's embraces for so many nights, might cling to his breast, might lie in his bosom. Behold to what an extent the test is heaped up. And what did Abraham tell Isaac as they walked along for three days together? Surely he is, had expected some day to impart to his beloved son his final testimony and blessing, but never under circumstances like these. And what was Abraham thinking as he walked along? Notice the old gentleman, says John Taylor, tottering along with his son, brooding over the promises of God and the peculiar demand now made upon him. We cannot conceive of anything that could be more trying and more perplexing than the position in which he was placed. Indeed, it would have been difficult enough to have even been apprised of Isaac's impending death, but Abraham was asked to do the deed by his own hand. Did God not abhor human sacrifice? Was it not a perversion of the true order of sacrifice it in, intended to signify the future sacrifice of the beloved son? Had not Abraham himself courageously opposed human sacrifice in Ur? Had not God rescued Abraham when he was about to be offered up in a sacrificial rite? This new request was the ultimate of ironies. Nor was there anything in all of the patriarchal records like it. For among the righteous, nothing in, of the kind had ever transpired before this precedent, noted John Taylor. And how could the divine promises through Isaac now be fulfilled? For had not God promised great blessings through this very son? Thus Abraham was asked to destroy the very thing that God had promised to protect and enhance his posterity. In the words of John Taylor, it was not only his parental feelings that were touched, 
For through the spirit of prophecy he had gazed upon his posterity as they should exist through the various ages of time, and among other things he saw the days of Jesus and was glad. And after all this God told him to take the life of his son. What, and prevent your posterity from coming upon the earth as you beheld it in vision? Yes, and in one stroke of the knife blast all these glorious blessed hopes. With Isaac then rested the future salvation of the entire world, the future of Zion, and Abraham well knew. And what of the salvation of those already living in Abraham's Zion? As pointed out by Jewish scholars, what would happen to his followers and those who admired him if he slaughtered Isaac and would... And the world learned that Abraham's teachings had been violated in the grossest manner by the teacher himself. His entire lifetime of achievement would be nullified. He would have been despised, vilified, and ridiculed. Well did one writer observe that what Abraham was asked to do threatened to empty all of the meaning from the story of his life. And yet he also knew, noted Spencer W. Kimball, that God would require nothing of him which was not for his ultimate good. How that good could be accomplished he did not understand, for the sacrifice seemed so contradictory. It was irreconcilable, impossible. It was, says Jacques Derrida, simply the most cruel, impossible, and untenable thing imaginable. Joseph Smith even indicated that if God had known any other way whereby he could have touched Abraham's feelings more acutely and more deeply, he would have done so. God was putting his beloved friend to the severest test that divine wisdom could design. No wonder that Abraham went, in the words of Spencer W. Kimball, with a breaking heart, as he walked along with his beloved but condemned son, each step bringing them closer to the slaughter. In the Genesis account, the journey is one of silence. We are not privy to Abraham's words, much less his thoughts or his feelings as he could share with no one. His alone was the agony. On the third day, says Genesis, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. How did he recognize it? Jewish tradition says he saw a pillar of fire or a cloud of glory resting upon the mountain. Then continues Genesis, Abraham said to his lads, You stay here with a donkey, I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship, and then we will come back to you. Why did Abraham expressly say that he and Isaac would both return? Was he perhaps confused, not really knowing what he was saying? Was he carefully hiding the truth, knowing that he and Isaac would not be really be returning? Or, as some of the Jewish sages believed, had the Holy Spirit suddenly prompted Abraham to utter these words, which were actually a prophecy? Or, as another Jewish interpreter thought, did Abraham intend to bring Isaac's bones back with him? Or did Abraham believe that God would resurrect Isaac on the spot, so that Abraham and Isaac would indeed walk back together? Once again, we are not privy to Abraham's inner thoughts, as we witness his unstinting obedience. Then Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. The rabbis commented that Isaac's carrying the wood for his own sacrifice is like one who carries his own cross on his shoulder. Then taking the fire stone and the cleaver in his own hand, Abraham set out with Isaac and the two walked off together. Hand in hand, says one midrash, Isaac broke the silence and said to his father, Abraham, father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, The firestone and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. In the Hebrew text, the word offering and my son can be read in apposition, making Abraham's answer ambiguous. Was he merely addressing his son, or had he told him that he, Isaac, would in fact be the offering? 
Rashi insisted that Isaac now understood that he was going to be slaughtered, yet he went willingly with equal heart. In the words of Eli Weisel, the two of them were alone in the world, encircled by God's unfathomable design. But they were together. Together they reached the top of the mountain. Together they erected the altar. Together they prepared the wood and the fire. Binding and Submitting Genesis records no conversation between Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. But at some point Abraham told him, perhaps in the words suggested by Barton Luther, You, my dearly beloved son, whom God has given me, have been destined for the burnt offering. Josephus records these words by Abraham. My child, having asked with myriad prayers from God that you will be born to me, when you came into my life there is nothing that I did not take trouble with regarding to your upbringing, nor was there anything that I thought would bring me greater happiness than if I should see you grow to manhood, and when I died I should have you as the successor of my realm. But since it was God's wish that I became your father, and again since, as it seems best to him, I give you up, bear this consecration nobly. For I concede you to God, who requires now to obtain this honor from us, in return for the fact that he has been a benevolent helper and ally to me. Since you were born out of this course of nature, depart now from life, not in common fashion, but sent forth by your own father to God, the father of all, by the right of sacrifice. I think that he has judged that you are deserving to be removed from life neither by disease nor by war, nor by some other of the afflictions that are conditioned by nature to befall humanity, but that he would receive your soul with prayers and sacrificial rites and would keep it near himself. And you will be guardian for me and supporter in my old age. Wherefore, also I especially reared you by offering me God in place of yourself." Martin Luther surmised that Abraham must have spoken to Isaac of the resurrection of the dead and the fulfillment of the promise that in Isaac the world would be blessed. God had given a command, therefore we must obey him, and He, since he is almighty, he can keep his promise even when you are dead and have been reduced to ashes. And Philo reports Abraham telling Isaac that to God all things are possible, including those that are impossible or insuperable to men. Isaac replied, according to Josephus, that he did not deserve to have been born in the first place, if he were to spurn the decision of God and his father and not readily offer himself to the wishes of both, when even if his father alone were choosing this, it would have been unjust to disobey. Thus, as the Midrash reports, when Isaac reconciled to his death in order to obey his maker's command. Perhaps Abraham spoke also of the symbolic significance of sacrifice, that since its institution with Adam, it represented the Savior's future sacrifice, and that Isaac's sacrifice, as the only human sacrifice that God had ever commanded, would be uniquely symbolic of that of the Savior. Genesis reports that Abraham bound Isaac his son, memorialized in the word Judaism still uses to refer to this events, akeda, or binding, of Isaac. Genesis contains not the slightest hint of any struggle, or and several sources relate that Isaac actually asked his father to bind him, lest at the last minute he lost his nerve and spoil the sacrifice. The Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan reports Isaac as saying, Bind me well, that I may not struggle at the anguish of my soul, and that a blemish may not be found in your offering. According to Al-Tabari, Isaac implored his father, Fasten my bands so that I do not move about, and tie back your garments so that none of my blood splashes on them, lest Sarah see it and be saddened. 
Jewish tradition further recounts that Isaac urged his father once he returned home to break the news gently to Sarah in a way and setting that she would not harm herself out of grief. A modern rabbi notes that even when his life was in mortal danger, Isaac's main concern was not for his own safety, but for his parents. In Judaism, Isaac remains an exemplar of the commandment to love God with all your soul. In the words of Clement, Isaac cheerfully yielded himself as a sacrifice. Isaac's greatness is seen in the fact that while Abraham had heard the directive for the sacrifice directly from God, Isaac had only heard it from Abraham, another human being. But Isaac did not question the source, for according to John Taylor, he knew very well that it was in obedience to the commandment of God. He knew very well that his father had communicated with the Lord and received revelations from him. They were absolutely united, proceeding, noted Rashi, with a common mind. In the words of Eli Weisel, the sacrifice was to be their joint offering, and father and son had never before been so close as Isaac lay on the altar, silently gazing at his father. Elder Melvin J. Ballard added that Abraham must have given his son his farewell kiss, his blessing, and his love. Islamic tradition similarly reports that Abraham kissed his son goodbye. And as Abraham, following the pattern of Adam, always performed sacrifice in the name of Jesus Christ, so he would have done on this occasion, offering a prayer for acceptance of the sacrifice. But it is an Islamic text from the early 1600s that purports to provide the context, contents of that unique prayer, beginning with a striking allusion to a prior experience of Abraham. Quote, most high and omnipotent sovereign, may all the celestial potentates of thy blessed sapphic choirs give praises to thy holy name with their melodious and echoing hymns forever and ever. End quote. It is a touching and poignant reminder to God of when Abraham had once been lovingly welcomed at the divine throne, an allusion to the highest moment of fellowship between God and Abraham, and the occasion when God had shown Abraham his future posterity who God had subsequently promised would come through Isaac. Later in the prayer, Abraham gratefully acknowledges the Lord's goodness and implores his grace. We have hourly tokens of thy great and boundless love towards us. I am now, Lord, upon the point of accomplishing what thou hast commanded me to perform. Grant, therefore, I beseech thee, that I may be illuminated with thy grace, so that I may be able perfectly to complete what I have taken in hand to thy honor and glory. These words are a veritable window into the soul of Abraham, who in his mortal moment of deepest distress was unfailingly grateful for the Lord's unfailing goodness. Like Nephi, Abraham did not know the meaning of all things, but knew that God loved him. And so with a perfectly submissive heart, he pled for strength to perform the almost undoable task. It is the consummate demonstration of what the Lord requires of Zion. As he said in the Latter-day Revelation, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind. At the most difficult moment, did Abraham remember when he himself had been on a pagan altar and had prayed to God for help? In contrast now, Isaac did not, could not, pray for help, for God himself had asked for this sacrifice. But it was more than Isaac laying on the altar, it was Zion itself. For had not the Lord himself promised that in Isaac would the world be blessed and through him the Messiah and Zion be born? Indeed, if the ancient concept of sacrifice supposed the putting to death of the unique in terms of its being unique, irreplaceable, and most precious, then this surely was the ultimate sacrifice, as Abraham and Isaac well knew. And yet, in the words of the Quran, 
Abraham and his son together submitted to God's will. The word submitted is a form of the Arabic word Islam, or submission, the word chosen by Muhammad for his new religion, which he insisted was actually a restoration of the religion of Abraham. Abraham's submission is the great paradigm for his Muslim descendants. How hard was this for Abraham? With this act, says John Taylor, Abraham saw all his hopes blasted, and among the thoughts crowding upon his mind with the expression of being left a dry root, helpless, hopeless, tottering on the grave without any air. Jewish tradition similarly reports that Abraham expected to live a few days only after completing this sacrifice. The report that the agony he underwent caused his hair to turn white on this occasion, a detail captured in Rembrandt's haunting painting of this scene. The painting also shows the tears coming streaming down from Abraham's face. The same tears described in both Jewish and Islamic tradition, the latter of which speaks of the ground becoming soaked with tears. Meanwhile, Isaac, seeing his father's hand with knife in it fall down against him, did not flinch. But then Isaac saw something else. As reported by the Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan, the eyes of Abraham were looking at the eyes of Isaac, and the eyes of Isaac were looking at the angels on high. Isaac saw them, but Abraham did not see them. How does one explain Abraham's actions? What made it possible to perform this near-impossible deed? Faith, answers W.F.P. Noble. It furnishes the only key to the questions that arise, unbidden as we read the story. A fond and doting father, how could Abraham undertake the task? How was he able to contemplate imbuing his hands in the blood of a son? How did he, his reason withstand the shock? How did his heart not break? How did he have the nerve to disclose the dreadful truth to Isaac, to kiss him and bind his naked limbs, to draw the knife from its sheath and raise his arm for the blow? How did not the cords of life snap under the strain? And Abraham spared the horrid sacrifice, fall dead on the altar, a pitiful sight, a father clasping within his lifeless arms the beloved form of a son. It is by the power of faith he stands there, the knife glittering in his hand, his arm raised to strike. Rabbinic texts tell of the angels weeping and pleading with God to stop the sacrifice. It was then, as Genesis recounts, that the angel of the Lord called out of heaven, Abraham, Abraham. As related in Jubilees, Abraham was startled. In Rembrandt's painting, the knife is dropping from Abraham's hand as his eyes look up toward the voice, eyes full of a supernal submission and a profound peace that divides description. This voice continued as Genesis reports, For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. But Jubilees has a different reading of that verse, not now I know, but now I have shown. Shown to whom? To Abraham, for one, the reason for this trial. <clears throat> said President Hubie Brown, was that Abraham needed to learn something about Abraham, and the world needed to learn something from Abraham. A few verses later, Jubilees reports God as saying, I have shown to all that thou art faithful unto me. The Midrash Rabbah similarly interpreted the Genesis verse to mean not, now I know, but rather, now I have made it known to all, and added that when the angel called Abraham's name twice, it was both to him and to future generations. Hence by this trial, says the medieval Jewish commentator Abrabanel, God made a demonstration holding Abraham up as an example and banner to all. According to the 19th century British reverend Ashton Oxenden, truly such an act of faith was never 
seen either before or since. But if the great Abraham could withstand a test unique among mortals, it is unique only in degree, for modern revelation tells that the Latter-day Saints must needs be tried even as Abraham, who was commanded to offer up his only son. Dedication, Vision, and Guarantee of Eternal Life Genesis does not describe Isaac's rising from the altar, but another Rembrandt description of the scene, depiction of the scene, shows Abraham and Isaac with their arms around each other, embracing. Says Eli Weisel, with a tenderness that must have moved the Creator and his angels. Altabari reports that Abraham kissed his son, saying, Oh my son, today you have been given to me. Another Islamic tradition relates that when Abraham went to untie Isaac, he found the bonds had already been miraculously loosened. It was another echo of what had happened when Abraham himself had been rescued on the altar in Ur. The rabbis observed that Isaac's rising from the altar was as one rising from the dead. Then his father unbound him, and Isaac rose, knowing that in this way the dead would come back to life in the future. The New Testament also considers Isaac's experience a kind of resurrection. In offering up Isaac according to the letter of the Hebrews, Abraham considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Looking around, Abraham saw that he, <clears throat> what he had not seen before, a ram caught by its thorns in a thicket. A sign, God now explained to Abraham that his descendants would likewise be trapped through their sins and entangled by foreign powers, but would in the end be redeemed when God would blow the horn, a ram's horn, according to Israel's prophets, and gather them home. Then, as Genesis tells, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the site Yahweh Yireh, meaning the Lord will or does provide, or the Lord will or does see. Accordingly, as Gen says Genesis, it is said to this day that in the mountain of the Lord it was provided, or on the mountain Yahweh provides, or on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The Hebrew words have a broad range of meaning and can also be read, in the mount the Lord was seen, or on the mountain Yahweh makes himself seen, or in the mountain of the Lord he may be seen or in the mountain where the Lord is seen, or in the mount will the Lord be seen, or on the mountain the Lord will see, or on Yahweh's mountain it is seen, or on the mount of the Lord there is sight, or on the mount of the Lord there is vision. What is vision? According to their Midrash Rabbah, as Abraham offered up the ram, the Holy One showed Abraham the temple built, destroyed and rebuilt, and yet again rebuilt and firmly established in the Messianic era, as in the verse from Psalms, when the Lord has, hath built up Zion, when he hath been seen in his glory, thereby Abraham saw the significance of the place where he was standing. It was Mount Zion, says Jubilees. Only then... Could Abraham have known why, or at least partially why, God had asked him to come all this way on this to this particular mountain, and why he had capped it with a cloud of glory to indicate the site of the sacrifice? For as he had happened for as had happened throughout history on various occasions, and as yet will happen again, the glory of God rests on Zion visibly. The Targums tell that Abraham proceeded to dedicate the site for the future temple to be built and maintained by his posterity. Abraham worshipped and prayed there, in that place, and he said, 
Here before the Lord shall future generations worship, and they would exclaim, On the mount of the holy temple of the Lord, Abraham offered up his son Isaac. Abraham saw, apparently even in greater detail, than what he had seen before, the distress his posterity would undergo, and again prayed for mercy on their behalf, asking the Lord to forgive their sins and deliver them from their oppression. And again the Lord promised to do so. Was ever a father so compassionate as Abraham, asked the Jewish text. The Lord spoke a second time from heaven again through his angel. By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, or I will greatly bless you, and I shall bless you abundantly, or I will shower blessings upon you, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sands which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice." Only then did the reason for the terrible trial become apparent. It was God's design to bless Abraham. Whereby a man suffers, says the rabbis, he is also exalted. Abraham suffered greatly through various trials, the most severe of which was when he was bound up, when bound his son upon the altar. Yet thereby was he also exalted. The New Testament letter to by the Savior's brother James states that it was through the offering of Isaac that Abraham's faith became perfect. A statement that takes on added significance when read in the light of God's command years earlier to Abraham, walk with me and be perfect. Abraham's three-day walk to Moriah in the depths of agony and loneliness turned out to be his closest walk yet with God, bringing the perfection and exaltation that God desired for him. Thereby, according to James, Abraham was called the friend of God, a, sim a statement similar to that found in the Damascus document of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Abraham was accounted a friend of God because he kept the commandments of God. That obedience would be memorialized among Abraham's Jewish descendants, who still in the Orthodox tradition, morning synagogue service, read the account of the binding of Isaac, not only to emphasize the theme of covenant and everlasting loyalty, but also as a reminder of the ancient standards of obedience to God's commandments. Thus, when God now announced the blessings, it was not just a promise, but an oath, as emphasized by the letter to the Hebrews. When God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. And so, after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So, what did it mean for the Almighty to swear by himself? God was really saying, according to the Midrash, Even as I live and endure forever to all eternity... So will my oath endure forever and to all eternity. It was the unconditional promise of eternal life, his calling and election made sure, which, says Joseph Smith, comes to a man after the Lord has thoroughly proved him and finds that the man is determined to serve him at all hazards. Accordingly, explained Joseph Smith, it was the power of an endless life which Abraham obtained by the offering of his son Isaac, an event that shows that if a man would attain to the keys of the kingdom of an endless life, he must sacrifice all things. The rabbi stated that at the beginning of the great trial, when God was first called, had first called Abraham's name, and he answered, Here am I, the real meaning was, Here am I, ready for priesthood, ready for kingship, and he obtained priesthood and kingship. Similarly, Joseph Smith stated that by the oath of God unto our father Abraham, his children were secured to him by the seal wherewith Abraham had been sealed. In the greatest irony of Abraham's life, only by binding Isaac for the sacrifice had Abraham bound himself, him to himself in the eternal bonds 
of priesthood sealing. And not just Isaac, but through that same oath, Abraham had secured all of his future righteous posterity, who would be as numerous as the stars and the sand. But the difference between stars and sand even served to symbolize the righteousness necessary to claim the blessing of Abraham. When they do the will of the Holy Ones, is the ancient Jewish source, they are as the stars of heaven, and no kingdom or people can will dominion over them. But when they flaunt his will, they are as the sands of the sea, trampled by every imperious foot. Even so, the sand also demonstrates even more than the stars the vast, utter vastness of Abraham's posterity. The sand on the seashore is an innumerable to us, commented Orson Pratt, and if we take a handful, it numbers its tens of thousands of grains. Hence, if Abraham's seed are to become as numerous as the sands on the seashore, they will fill a great many worlds. There is to be no end to the increase of the old patriarch. It is nothing less than, as Latter-day Revelation indicates, the promise of eternal lives, even a fullness of a continuation of the seeds forever and ever, both in the world and out of the world. The perked at Rabbi Eliezer similarly explains that at the end of Abraham's trial on Mount Moriah, God swore to bless him in this world and in the world to come, saying, I will surely bless you in this world and greatly multiply you in the world to come. As this is of special rev uh, relevance to Latter-day Zion, whose saints are heirs to the same promise because, says the Revelation, they are of Abraham. According to Bruce R. McConkie, when he is married in the temple for time and all eternity, each worthy member of the church enters personally into the same covenant the Lord made with Abraham. This is the occasion when the promises of eternal increase are made, and it is then specified that those who keep the covenants made there shall be inheritors of all the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the words of Orson Hyde, may not we, if faithful to our God and to our covenants, be as Abraham? Shall there be any end to our posterity? May there not be, a, may they not be as numerous as the stars in the firmament and as the sands upon the seashore? Sea Zion and her atoning king. Most importantly, as the Apostle Paul emphasized, God's promise to Abraham focused on that one particular descendant who would bless all nations, even the Savior. As Abraham himself well knew, having previously seen in vision the Savior's birth and ministry. In fact, Abraham must now have recognized, if he didn't already, that his own intense trial had been a remarkably detailed foreshadowing of the great atonement of Christ. According to the Cave of Treasures, an early Christian work, when Abraham took up his son as an offering, he at the same time foresaw in this act the crucifixion of Christ. Nor would some of Abraham's offspring miss the symbolism of this poignantly unique event as simply the clearest and most powerful type of the most important event ever to take place on this planet, the sacrifice of the Son of God. Hence, when the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob chose from all of past history an event that would serve as a compelling similitude of God and his only begotten son, it was the obedience of Abraham in the wilderness in offering up his son Isaac. The same comparison is evident in the New Testament, where the Greek word used by James to describe Abraham's faith being made perfect, teleonon, when he offered up Isaac, is the same word used in the Gospel of John when Jesus prays that his disciples may be perfect in one, and yet again in the same word used by John to describe the crucifixion of Jesus as bringing scriptures to complete fulfillment. 
But already John had written that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the one passage that best sums up the entire Gospel of John. The words carry a distinct and intentional echo of God's ancient directive to Abraham to offer up his beloved Son. Moreover, as the first occurrence of any form of the word love in the Old Testament is God's mention of Abraham's love for Isaac in Genesis 22. So the first occurrence of love in the New Testament is by a heavenly voice, speaking of the love of a father for his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And as Abraham had walked up the mountain to perform the sacrifice, he had promised Isaac that God would provide a lamb. What God provided that day was a ram. So where was the lamb? The answer comes only later, as recorded in the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus and announces, Behold, the Lamb of God. This was the fulfillment of Abraham's prophecy, uttered in the only conversation that Genesis records between Abraham and his posterity. Hence, according to the second-century theologian and martyr Iranius, Abraham delivered up as a sacrifice to God his only begotten and beloved son, in order that God also might be pleased to offer up for all his seed his own beloved and only begotten son, as a sacrifice for our redemption. Or as portrayed in Armenian apocryphal sources, Abraham is the type of God the Father, Isaac is Christ, and the wood is the wood of the cross. Abraham's sacrifice is God's sending of his son. Such redemption would take place very near the site of Abraham's similitude, even as prophetically foretold by generations of ancient Israelites exclaiming, In the mount will the Lord be seen. Ironically, only when Abraham had obediently undertaken the act whereby he would apparently relinquish the promise of being the Savior's ancestor, did he secure the guarantee of that promise. This guarantee of God swearing an oath is unprecedented in Genesis, but not in the writing of Abraham's forefathers. When Enoch had prayed for mercy for his posterity, the Lord had covenanted with Enoch and irrevocably sworn with an oath to preserve and protect his posterity, adding that Blessed is he through whose seed Messiah shall come, for he saith, I am Messiah, the king of Zion. The Messiah's unnamed blessed ancestor could well be Abraham, who, upon completing the similitude of the Messiah's atonement, heard the Lord swear an oath, guaranteeing that through Abraham's seed would indeed come the Messiah, the king of Zion. The word Zion is used throughout the prophetic and psalms literature and extensively in the rabbinic writings to designate the most important of all Jewish geographical locations, the Temple Mount. Curiously, Jewish and biblical scholars are at a loss to explain the origin of the name, noting that from earliest times it is transmitted as a proper name and undoubtedly comes from a pre-Israelite times, having been only secondarily transferred to Jerusalem and its Temple Mount and a kink part of the inherited tradition depicts the city of God in the light of complete happiness and prosperity. In short, the Zion tradition at Jerusalem is now recognized to be far older than Jerusalem itself, pointing back to an ancient golden age. Only with the loss of the Enoch text did later generations forget the original, the order of Enoch that those of Jerusalem sought to reestablish on the very site dedicated by Abraham for that purpose. Now, nor would the Jerusalem effort to reestablish Zion be the last, for as Brigham Young said, it is the order of Enoch that God had established for his people in all ages of the world when he has had a kingdom upon the earth. It would thus be the order of the latter days, as Abraham also foresaw when he beheld in vision the temple as it would stand in the far distant messianic era. It was all part of the original oath to Enoch about the latter day return of his city to Zion. 
to meet the earthly Zion built by Abraham's posterity, pursuant to the oath sworn to Abraham by God through his angel on Mount Moriah. Who was that angel? Jubilees specifies that it was the very angel of the presence who, as seen before, is elsewhere identified as Enoch. Similarly, in the Midrash Halgadol, the angel who called out of heaven is specifically named as Metatron, who is Enoch. This source further tells that Metatron was chosen to relay the message because as Abraham was about to off to sacrifice Isaac, Metatron arose before the Holy One and said before him, Lord of the universe, let not the seed of Abraham perish for the world. The Lord then indicated to Metatron to call him. As it is written, the Lord of the the angel of the Lord then called to him from heaven. Having once been God's messenger to rescue Abraham from death on the altar in Ur, Enoch again serves as God's messenger to rescue Abraham's son of promise from another altar, and to convey the oath encompassing the future building of Zion. In fact, a Turkish source seems to indicate that it was concern for the Latter-day Zion that prompted the plea of the angels, who saw from the preserved tablet that the prophet of the end time will come from the line of the son about to be sacrificed. For Latter-day Saints, this end-time prophet is none other than Joseph Smith. Hence, on Mount Moriah, Zion above had interceded for Zion below, and particularly for the benefit of Latter-day Zion. But only after Abraham's obedience had foreshadowed the price to be paid for Zion by her king, the Messiah, the Son of God and of Abraham. Well did the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard title his treatment of Abraham's sacrifice, Fear and Trembling. For as a later philosopher, Jacques Derrida, would comment about Abraham's sacrifice, What is it that makes us tremble? It is the gift of infinite love. To him whose death was prefigured by the experience of Isaac, Moroni said, Thou hast loved the world even unto the laying down of thy life for the world. It was this divine gift of love freely given to Zion by her suffering king that was foreshadowed in Abraham's offering of his beloved son.